0: Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Error Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and this could well mark the first time I cry during an episode. The reason for that is a new book called Breaking, which details the trauma that journalists have been exposed to during their work and the effect that it has on them. It's been described as a collection of stark, brutal and courageous stories written by some of Ireland and Britain's most renowned journalists, camera people and broadcasters. In its pages, these journalists write about how their careers impacted their mental health, how it left some of them with PTSD, others with anxiety and others with depression. It even made some of them walk away from their hard-fought dream jobs after being worn down by what's been described as a conveyor belt of trauma. The book is edited by Chris Lindsay and Leona O'Neill and Leona is my guest on this episode. She's a lecturer in journalism at Ulster University and she's worked for the Belfast Telegraph, the Irish News and a bunch of other newspapers from all over Northern Ireland as well as being a field producer for a number of international news agencies. Now for the bit that might just make me cry. Leona was present when Lyra McKee was murdered in Derry on April 18th 2019. For those of you who don't know, Lyra was a brilliant Irish journalist who was shot dead while covering an event in the Cregan area of the city. And Leona's eyewitness account was one of the first, if not the only one, that many people would have heard. To sort of set the scene for this episode, I want to read you a little bit of what she wrote in the book Breaking about that night. As I sat there in the dawn light... The police tweeted out confirmation of what all of us standing on that cold Craigan Street in Derry had feared. Lyra McKee had died. Still numb, I retweeted their message and said that I was standing beside this young woman when she fell and that I was sick to my stomach. My phone immediately started ringing. It was reporters from radio and television stations I had worked with across the world wanting me to relay what I'd seen. I couldn't get what I had just seen out of my head. I could still smell the smoke from the burning vehicles off my clothes. On autopilot, I said the same five sentences, almost word for word, to 50 different stations, to strangers and colleagues alike. I heard the shots and ran for cover. She was just laying there on the ground. We didn't know what had hit her. My friend put his coat under her head and I phoned for an ambulance. The police put her in the back of their vehicle and crashed through the burning barricades. They took her to hospital, where she tragically died. Leona, we started this episode by reading a little bit of your contribution to the, the book Breaking. Could you just take me back to that evening in the cregan and what happened on the night that Lyra McKee was murdered?
1: Yeah so I was covering um I was covering there was a riot happening up there some disturbances actually it started off it was just house searches house, house searches even um in the area it was the weekend before there was to be a dissident republican march happening in the in craigan that monday i think it was or the sunday i can't remember and so tensions were quite high um the dissident republican march was banned by the police and they had said that they were going to resist you know the 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 ban and they were going to fight back against the ban so the tension was quite high and um i remember i was at a i was at a elections hustings i think it was my friend his cameraman called and said listen there's something happening in craigan and so I made my way up and, um, sure enough, there was a, there was house searches going on in one of the streets in Craigan. Um, is a very nationalist Republican area. So, Big amounts of police going into that area would cause, you know, youths don't like the the police particularly. Some youths don't like the police particularly, and they express they're just like through stones and balls and stuff like that. So, um, so a bit of a riot broke out there in the next street, and um, so I was obviously covering that for the the papers and for the radio station I was working for at the time, and it got progressively worse. Um, Throughout the day, throughout the night, sorry, and um, it's uh, you know they had burning, they had a burning barricade, they had a, they had cars uh, on fire, they'd hijack cars and stuff. But I don't know if your your listeners might be familiar with you know a riot in Northern Ireland that just kind of tends to happen in a kind of highly populated area, residential area, very strange. People were standing on the doorsteps, you know, mothers with children on their hip and teenagers walking past and taking selfies and stuff. It's a very, very strange kind of atmosphere. There was no there was no kind of fear. There was no tension. It was just kind of people throwing petrol bombs and the police land rovers were there. The officers were inside the, the vehicles. Um, But whenever I saw the 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 burning kind of the cars being hijacked, I knew there was probably like a a, a maybe a firearm involved so I moved further on up the street where I thought it was safe and um sort of went on fireworks were were blaring people were throwing petrol bombs mass men were throwing petrol bombs at the the, the police and and that went on for a couple of hours actually and um and then just shortly before 11 o'clock um I was I was on my phone. I don't know if you've, you've done this perhaps yourself before, but I was filing my story on my phone, writing and typing it on my phone. So with my head down on my phone and I heard a, a pop of a shot and I knew immediately it was a shot. And I, I put my head down and I started rolling up the street and I shouted at people that they're firing. They're sh- that's shots fired, shots fired. And people kind of laughed at me. People like, is up, it's just fireworks. But I could hear something whistling past my ear very close to my ear. I don't know if it was far away or just that was the sound. It was kind of like a, it was a a buzzing or a whistling. It's hard to sort of determine what the the actual sound was uh, as I ran. And I ran and got down behind a kind of wall. And I kind of felt a bit silly because people, nobody else was moving anywhere or people were kind of laughing at my kind of overreaction. And just as I was sort of kneeling down on the on the against the wall, I looked over and I saw there was a police lander was just right beside us. And I looked over and I saw, I saw what I thought was a pile of clothes actually on the ground. And my kind of eyes were focusing. You know what what is that? You know it looked like a it looked like a big chunky hoodie or something that maybe someone had dropped. Um, my eyes focused on it and I saw that it was actually a it was a it was a woman and uh, someone beside me started to scream and that's when just chaos erupted you know there were people running towards that they saw that was Lyra that had fallen just sort of and she was kind of hugging the front uh, the front wheel of a Land Rover and uh, that she had been injured and but nobody knew that she had been hit by a bullet at that stage people there was fireworks flying everywhere and there's stones and bricks as well so nobody knew what had actually failed her you know and my friend rushed over and he put his uh, coat under her head and and people were just screaming and uh, crying and people were shouting. And there's people up banging on the Land Rover door saying that they had knocked someone down. It was just total confusion. And I phoned an ambulance and uh, I, I was so shocked at what I saw. I could hardly um, string a sentence together, to be honest with you. I was so shocked. I, I couldn't, I was trying to sort of say to the ambulance people, we need an ambulance. I couldn't remember the name of the street. And then eventually I asked them, I'm saying, what's the name of the street? And they were asking, you know, is a, is a patient still breathing? And and I couldn't get, there was such a crowd around her at that stage. I couldn't, nobody was answering me. Um. And then the, the police got out of the Land Rover. They saw perhaps what had happened. And uh, they got out of the Land Rover and they uh, lifted Lyra and put her into the Land Rover and, Slammed the door and and um drove through just straight through the burning barricade at the bottom of the street. Very actually, uh, you know, it was heroic of them to do that because the, it was on flames. There were there were people obviously firing guns, Uh, there could have been any kind of explosives or anything there. But they just drove straight through the barricade and took Leah to hospital where where she where she died. You know, so um and I just remember standing there. Uh, everything went quiet then the sirens had been there for a for a minute before and the, the air was felt <laughs> felt still with us fireworks and um and everything then was just so still and uh the fireworks stopped you know exploding and everybody just stood there because we, we were like what what has just happened and I just remember my friend um came over and his hands were covered in blood and um and we were just everybody was just so shocked that we didn't even know what they say or do or uh, there just wasn't there just were no words, you know, and it was it was just horrific, horrific that anybody would have to uh, die on the street like that and horrific that people would have to witness that, that type of brutality and hatred in the, in the street. Just absolutely horrific.
0: Did you recognize Lyra before she was put into the Land Rover? Did you know who it was when she was taken away?
1: I didn't know Lyra. I didn't know Lyra at all. I I knew that she was a friend of my friend, um, but I didn't know. I didn't know Mm -hmm. her at all. I I mean, um, she was a journalist from Northern Ireland, but she was maybe Belfast based and I was sort of dairy based. I didn't, I didn't know her. It was because of her, um, because of her kind of small stature, I think people thought that um she was a she was a young girl as well, which yeah. was kind of um when she took her glasses off and her and her wee short hair and stuff like that, they thought that maybe she was a she was a child. So yeah. there was there was that too. So yeah.
0: From that, um, you mentioned in the book that, yeah, the I think it was the PSNI oh. tweeted that she had passed away in the hospital and you retweeted that. And then all of a sudden your phone blew up because the whole world was onto you wanting to know what had happened there. How difficult is it? Because you've said that, you know, that was actually, you know, you kind of welcomed that for a while because it meant that you didn't have to process what you'd just seen.
1: Yeah, um I it, it was kind of I was sitting outside my house. It was a really weird thing, Philip. You might know this when you're you're a journalist yourself. You kind of put up this bit of an emotional barrier whenever you um whenever you're you're a journalist and you're going out on a job and um they protect yourself from some of the horrors that you see on the on the job, you know, different things that you might might come across and different tragedies and and stuff like that. And um yeah, I sat outside my car because I just didn't want to go back into the house. I didn't want to go back in and see my kids sort of um, because half an hour previous to that, there were bullets wasn't past my head. And I could have been hit by one of those bullets and never came home to my children and left my kids without a mother because of my, my job. Um, Did that make you feel guilty, Leona? Yeah, that made me feel really guilty. There's, there's an enormous amount of guilt uh associated with this uh trauma there was a guilt of <clears throat> there was a guilt of uh not being able to help Lyra not being able to not knowing what to do in such a traumatic incident they helped save her there was the trauma and the guilt of surviving that when she didn't and why did I survive when she didn't and there was a guilt of putting myself in danger when I could have been taken away from my kids and they would have had to grow up without their mother. So much guilt associated with that. It was just, it was horrible. It was horrible to deal with on top of all the the trauma.
0: Um, there's two ways you can learn to handle situations like this in the field, right? One is experience and the other is you can be trained for it, right? I've had the opportunity to do hostile environment training courses as they're called. Have you, during your career, has anybody ever said to you, right, we need to send you away. We need to teach you first aid. We need to teach you the difference between fireworks and bullets. No, it's a short
1: short answer to that uh, question. And to be honest, I don't think the training would have done any have made any difference to um, what happened that night. I don't think the training would have protected me from the trauma that I experienced, and I think that it's not only the trauma that I experienced then. I suppose, you know, I developed PTSD from from what happened, but I, I it wasn't just from that one experience. It was from it was maybe a lot of other experiences before that and after that, and that one thing tipped me over the edge. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if training and that's something I feel also feel guilty about as well you know if I if I knew how to feel and dress and to be honest it wouldn't have made any difference but um, you know if if I knew how to do stuff like that that's another way to just torture me myself you know sort mm-hmm. of if I had training would, I, would things have worked out differently and I don't know because you don't know what what you don't know what you are going to do in that situation because you know, you could freeze, you could just forget things that you've learned. It's unless you're in that situation, you don't know the actual horror of it. And you're not a trained sort of paramedic or anything that you kind of just jump in the action regardless of. I mean, there were still whenever Lyra was lying on the ground, there were still um, shots being fired and fireworks going off. And so it's I don't know if training would have made made an awful lot of difference in that, in that scenario, to be honest. no. Um,
0: what sort of help did you receive afterwards? Because this was this story went around the world. So obviously you worked with the story. You gave, I think you said it was like 50 different interviews in the aftermath of that. Did anybody sort of put an arm around you and say, Look, how can we help you? How are you doing? Because as far as I recall, it took a very long time for anybody to even ask you how you were.
1: In the in the in the morning after the, you know, I sat out in my car all night because I didn't want to um, go back in to my kids you know journalists were just phoning and they were doing their job they were just wanting to know the facts um it wasn't until maybe a couple hours later when a friend of mine just actually called and said you know he wasn't doing the story and he kind of just said are you you all right this is a really terrible thing that happened are you okay and and that was kind of um and I think that broke me a wee bit as well because before that I was in reporter mode and I was, you know, just doing the story, very robotic. And I think I said the same five sentences over and over and over again. Hmm. Uh, you know, this is what happened. And and then she tragically died and stuff. And I just said the same thing over and over and over again because I was on autopilot. I wasn't even thinking about what I was saying. It's a funny thing. My brain just shut down. I just hmm. couldn't think of anything beyond the poor Gaird's face. I couldn't think of I literally couldn't get past it. And um, you know, my husband was trying to ask me what what had happened and I couldn't even tell him. And I just it was just words just left me. And I just remember um the, you know, the, my my friend, a, a journalist, a fellow journalist, called and just asked, you know, what are you all right? And just those simple words and it just it brought forth an awful lot of emotion for me. So yeah, it was it was rough going. And um, since then, have you sought any sort
0: of professional help or did you deal with the trauma that you experienced that night through putting together this book and and collecting everybody else's trauma as well? Was that a way of dealing with it for you?
1: It was a way of dealing with it. Yeah, but I had to sort myself out I'm a mother of four children and I had seen something very traumatic. And then in the aftermath of it, I was being targeted by conspiracy theorists and, and dissident supporters and all kinds of absolutely crazy people who, you know, decided that. They, they, they just wanted to torture me as a sport, and I had four kids to look after, and I couldn't fall to pieces because of, of that. So I went for I went to counseling. I went to counseling for about a year and a half, and it was very very helpful. Um, it it helped me kind of try and process things in my head. I mean, even just the the guilt of feeling traumatized by something. Uh, I felt that that wasn't even my place. wasn't my place to feel traumatized because I didn't know this girl at all. I was just happened to be there when she was murdered you know and um just even dealing with that that it was okay for me to be traumatized by something because I'd seen something really horrific uh but I did need I did need help I realized after a year of um the year after I just worked and worked and worked it's a thing with PTSD that people kind of lean on things like drink or drugs and or um or just working themselves under the under the ground and that was what I did I just I don't I don't drink and I don't do drugs I I just worked I just worked and worked and worked seven days a week I didn't um because if I stopped working the kind of the you know the the, the memories of that night and and all what happened just came back to me and I didn't want to feel that I didn't want to sit with that and um it was whenever. Covid lockdown happened. Kind of things started to slow down in the news. You kind of people were, you know, there wasn't as much work around. Uh, I was a freelancer at that stage, and then I got what was at at that time they weren't doing tests, but it was suspected COVID, and I was sick for two weeks, and I had to kind of stay in my room, isolated from everybody else for two weeks, and I had no choice at that stage. Just they they look, they sit with my anxiety, sit with my panic, sit with my horror and terror, and all that type of stuff and just process it and it was really really difficult. Um but then after that I started saying you know I, I find writing very therapeutic. So I started um I started writing down my own because I, I at that time I could not speak about what happened that night. I literally physically could not speak about it without emotion rising up and just blocking my my sort of voice. It was really weird. It was kind of I couldn't speak about it without crying. And um so I, I wrote about it instead. I just got the the, the words down on a, on on paper. And um, and then I started talking to my one of my friends, Chris Lindsay, about it. And he was saying he felt a similar uh, way whenever he was blown up in, in, in Belfast by um, a blast bomb from dissident Republicans. And um, so he felt a similar way. And I said, what about getting, you know, you feel like this. And then someone else over here says they felt like that. And people were talking to me about it, you see. About their kind of um trauma and things that they had seen in the newsroom. I said, this, this, we're all kind of sitting on our own wee trenches thinking that we feel we're the only people that feel this way. Let's get, you know, like let's get something together, let's get a book together, let's get a kind of collection of these uh, stories together so that other people don't feel alone. And, and some of the, so the, the people in the book are quite very well-known journalists, very well-respected journalists, and for them to kind of say, this story broke me and this this is what happened and this is how I dealt with it I think it's a really courageous thing for people to do because it makes other people feel less alone um in the dark you know and and kind of it, it normalizes it. it normalizes that sometimes you can be traumatized by things and and, and they're not all you know very um uh, dramatic things like Chris being blown up or me seeing someone being murdered they're they're just ordinary things too, like sort of Uh, inquests or um, deaths or murder scenes or things that just had a for no apparent reason just had a kind of an impact on journalists that have been in the game for such a long time and this one thing just sent them over the edge which can happen and uh, the reason that we did this was because there's generally nine times out of ten there are no um, systems in newsrooms to help um journalists dealing with any kind of trauma it's just kind of a bit of a conveyor belt of doom and you just have to stay on that constantly on to the next story on the next story and no chance to kind of process anything
0: when when you were putting the stories together did you recognize certain elements of it like in sort of everyone did, did the stories have something in common or were they all very different did you feel
1: yeah i think they're all very different you know there's um I'm trying to think about the, the different chapters. Chris is talking about being blown up in the in the, the pipe bomb in, in Belfast. I'm talking about the, the murder. Um Davy McElveen's talking about COVID and sort of covering the COVID story. Uh Claire Allen's talking about kind of you know child deaths and kind of inquests and stuff, which are really horrific. Uh, Neil McKay is talking about um uh paramilitary putting a gun in his mouth. And uh, the various different sort of being beaten up and stuff. Um, Josh Mainka was in um, in Iraq, I think it was Iraq, uh, when his friend was blown up by friendly fire. Um, Trish Devlin's talking about death threats. Henry McDonald's talking about uh, the Oma Bomb. David Blevins talked about the Oma Bomb too and the Shankle Bomb. Um, various people, you know, Chris or Kahal McNaughton's talking about india and the refugee camps it's not the trouble it's not a troubles related book where we're all talking about how the troubles kind of impacted on us mm-hmm. um it's a lot of people talking about the what-ifs now carson is talking about now carson was shot and on a on a peace line in belfast and he was beaten up in dublin and people are just talking about the what-ifs you know what if i had moved in a different way that night than craig and what if that bullet that hit Niall's leg had have you know if the gunman had a moved his hand up, a bit, he would have maybe hit him in the head or, um, you know there's there's a lot of people there just with the what ifs and that's quite and that's something that I suppose journalists wrestle with all the time when they're out in the in the zone, I suppose and they're they're doing the work and they're kind of getting the stuff done. They don't think about themselves. You're kind of you're in the zone. It's like my friend Peter Doherty's in the book also talking about he just sees through the, the camera lens and he doesn't mm-hmm. sort of take in anything else. And one of the stories that he talks about is when Michael Stone came on day storm out and he had a bag of pipe bombs and he threw them across the floor and they landed right beside Peter Doherty. But because he was um, filming the scene, he didn't realise, he didn't look away from his camera lens and look down to see that there was a bag of pipe bombs right beside him. And if they had it went off, it would have killed him, you know, so mm-hmm. It's um, so it's about that. It's about the what ifs and about the things, the news that you know breaking the news and the news that broke us. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember doing a story with Colin McNaughton many years ago, great photographer from Northern Ireland, right. and he came over right. here to Sweden during the refugee crisis and we went to talk to people who come to Sweden looking for refuge, but we couldn't film their faces because many of them would have been people who had families still in, in Syria or who had somebody, you know, in military service in Eritrea and that, and the conversation that we had for the three or four days we were doing that story was the what if, because we realised that, you know, in the in the wrong place at the wrong time, that could have been us who was on the run in a different place, yeah. and it was it was if you look at the photographs that you took there, because a lot of people just held their hands over their faces as they told, as they let Carl K- take their pictures, you know, and it was one of the most profound stories and i was just helping call out he was the genius taking the pictures but it was one of the most profound things that happened to me was watching those stories being told and Carl sort of translating them into pictures that everybody could relate to and still to this day you know like i i can remember that and you know the story he's obviously told me some of the stories that he's told you as well um you're now a lecturer in journalism at the university of ulster if i'm not mistaken is it ulster Um,
1: university
0: yeah ulster university sorry and what you know? Do you is this a conversation that you have with students? Because you know, I find a lot of the time that you know, you don't know about these things until you're in it. You know, so do they have any idea of the kind of things that yourself and the Noel Carsons of this world have been through to get to where you are?
1: Yeah, it's not that it's not that to get to where we are. I suppose it's it's unusual, and I've gathered together and myself and Chris have gathered together um, um, stories from people uh, who've had various experiences, I make sure that I tell my guys that I, this is not a, this is not a thing that will happen to you. It might not, it probably will not happen to you It's a kind of, it's a, it's a one-off. Um, but I do prepare them for, uh, we do resilience training. We also do hostile environment training as well, actually, but I do prepare them for, um, the grimness of this of the of the game it can be at times and how do you prepare themselves mentally how do you look after themselves as well how do you realize that, it, that this it's not all kind of sunshine and and rainbows in the in the newsroom and that you will have to deal with uh quite intense quite tragic stories some of my folks who have just graduated are covering the you know the Donegal tragedy at the moment and that's a really really tough that's a really tough story they to, they um Uh, to cover for it for even veteran reporters it's a very tough story to cover so i make sure that they know that they can talk to one another because this is a normal thing you know i would find it quite strange if someone um saw something for example my own experience if someone saw something as traumatic as what i saw and maybe didn't have a reaction i think i think it may be um you know, disassociation or something like that. I think think that's kind of, there's there's something not right there. So I tell them it's normal. It's normal to feel impacted by a story. Uh, Talk to your colleagues about it. Uh, It's normal to to talk to your colleagues about this type of thing as well and tell them if you're struggling and if you are struggling to get help. And I normalize that conversation. So when I say I was struggling and I got help and it made me feel better and made me feel stronger. So if you are uh, struggling with anything, it's completely normal um seek help talk to people and um and, and try and kind of and also face it you know if there are, if there's <clears throat> if there's um something that is bothering you or something that has impacted on you face it head on because there's no point in hiding away from it and uh, hiding away from your your fear or hide, hiding away from your whatever is troubling you just face it head on and deal with it
0: Um, The book is sort of quite specific in that it talks about trauma in the newsroom. Did you find in in your career that it to be a very sort of macho environment where we didn't speak about feelings and we didn't speak about trauma and in fact we prided ourselves, you know, with a certain sense of pride in that, you know, we just got on with it, you know, and I can't, you know, I'm thinking back to things like terror attacks and that kind of thing. I don't think we've ever mentioned afterwards the pictures that we saw, you know, of dead children, that kind of thing. I certainly can't ever remember talking to colleagues about that until I talked to you about it. yeah. Did you find that, or is that something you know? Is that something you're trying to change, or was it not a subject for you uh, in your career?
1: Well, in, in the newsrooms, I have new, the, the mental health wasn't uh, wasn't really talked about. It was just you know, if you finish the story, and things are different now, where people are taking this a bit more seriously because I suppose um, newsrooms kind of think, okay, it, it might cost some money to deal with, put it in place, maybe a mental health first aider, which some places actually have, which is great. Uh, it'll cost money to put on a mental health first aider. it'll also cost money to pay a producer or a, a reporter for a year if they're off sick with ptsd or, or what have your trauma and it's better to kind of put those things in place beforehand so that there's support there for your staff instead of actually you know dealing with it at the at whenever they actually break and you have to um, you know you have to look after them then um, the newsrooms that I have been in and I've been in many many newsrooms over the years they are quite macho places I'm not talking of it's just all men talking about you know give over about you know being traumatized by this woman are just as bad at, at this type of thing Women um, and male and female journalists um, have this mindset which I find is very toxic they just get on with it. And if you're not up for the job, if you feel if you're weak and you can't handle the story or if a story upsets you, then you maybe need to work on something else. Some other department, why don't you go to sport or features, uh, whereas a bit or maybe you're soft or um things like that. And, that. and that's really, really unhealthy. And that has led to a lot of people masking and hiding their uh, real mental health issues and struggling through their career and using alcohol and drugs and others kind of other dangerous behaviors crutches and um you know it's 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 really really not healthy and we need to sort that out we need to sort it firstly the, the mindset the mindset that um journalists are just comp- they're, they're just robots and they deal with all this stuff not just to put people who are out in war zones or the people that are on the ground and kind of very tragic um you know, covering very tragic and heartbreaking stories, but the people back in the office also who are maybe filtering really tough pictures from war zones of, as you say, of dead children and dead bodies and stuff like from Ukraine today, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was going around, um excuse me, uh, there was a lot of stuff going around um social media and that, those photographs would also, and probably worse come through, uh, newsrooms because there's photographers out there they're in war zone mode and they're just clicking and sending and they're not kind of filtering anything or they're not censoring anything and uh, so there there are journalists and there are media workers back in the, in um in the newsroom that are filtering that kind of stuff filtering those type of stories and um and other things as well you know when you're when you're dealing with a tragedy or a terror attack you know you've got the sort of initial stuff where people are talking about the you know what happened and the dead and and uh the injuries and stuff and then you have the funerals and and the, the tributes to the, fa- the the people and then you have the funerals and all the kind of emotions that are that are um caught up in that and what happens is journalists can um suffer with vicarious trauma And that's trauma, secondary trauma, they're absorbing trauma from another source, from someone who's been traumatized by hearing their story or seeing the images or, or that type of stuff. And that's a real thing. And sometimes journalists feel, you know, they feel they can't sleep or they feel that they are really raw or emotional or irritable or all that type of stuff. And they don't realize that that's actually vicarious trauma, secondary trauma. They just think that they're maybe losing it or maybe they're losing their touch or maybe they're getting soft or all that type of stuff. That's kind of drummed into them. And that's why, you know, a lot of people in the newsroom don't talk about this. They think perhaps if I talk about my, uh, that, that a story has really impacted me, then I might be taken off hard news and I might be put somewhere else because they don't think I'm up for the job. I'm not tough enough for that. And that's really, that's really, really dangerous. You know, it can lead to people, as I say, masking their... Masking their their struggles and um that that's not a good place to be. Have you had that sort
0: of negative reaction where people go, ah, "Shut up, Leona! Stop moaning! It's over now. It wasn't you. It was somebody else." You know? Did you ever get that kind yeah. of negative reaction?
1: Yeah, I have had that. Yeah, and <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to shut up because um this it traumatized me what happened traumatized me the people who uh say things like that to me it's i mean it tends to be people online and and on social media um you know, it's not sort of my place to be traumatized. It's not, it wasn't anything to do with me. What are you talking about? All that kind of stuff. Um, it tends to be people that couldn't comprehend in a million years, standing on a street and a bullet flying past your head, like centimeters from your head. It's Unless you're in that place, unless you were there and you experienced that, all the kind of what ifs along with that. And then we we're, we're tortured for a year afterwards from, you know, malicious um, people you've no idea what what that feels like absolutely no idea so you shut up
0: (laughs) (laughs) how are you with it now leona because obviously you've had a year and a half of counseling there's some distance between now and when the event happened is it still something that bothers you or is it something that you know have you made your peace with that guilt that you felt in the aftermath that you know that you survived that you could have done more
1: um that's a good question i mean it's been three years ago now i will never forget it as a night i will never forget i still get nightmares i still wake up in the night uh, sometimes screaming um I uh, I get night terrors. Um, I find it difficult reading stories about that. I find it difficult whenever I open a paper or switch on social media and Lyra's face um, is there. And, um, you know, because it it just brings me straight back to that night. And I don't know when that will go away. It's almost like at the start, it almost comes in phases. At the very start, I remember about three weeks, three or four weeks after it happened, um, I was in Craig and there was another riot and the sound of sirens brought me straight back to that night. I could even smell the smoke. There was no smoke where I was standing, but I could still, I could smell the smoke in my, in my nose and, um, things like that kind of bring me back. Or if someone says something or the sound of fireworks is another thing as well. It kind of brings you back or the sound of, you know, there's fireworks and dairy at the moment because Halloween and it kind of, it, it, it makes me feel uneasy. Um, it never leaves you, it never properly goes away. Something like that. If you witness something like that, I suppose if, if anybody has witnessed anything like that, they'll know it's always there. It's like a kind of a cloud that follows you around. Um, and it's uh I haven't I haven't made peacefully with it. I don't think I ever will. I mean, if you see someone murdered in the street, and how could you ever make peace for that? There's no one um really been held accountable for it also. Um it's, it's a, it would be very difficult to, to make peace with something like that, that someone just fired indiscriminately up a street and, you know, you could have been killed and taken away from your kids. It's, it's, a, it's a strange kind of place to be, but um, things do bring it back for me. You know, it's in a, not in a nice way. It's It's quite difficult to talk about this book and about what happened and people want to talk to me about that um that night and i find it very difficult to talk about but i i can talk about it now whereas before i couldn't i couldn't even get the words i couldn't even i remember the two days after or the day after the the murder i was in a hotel uh lobby in the belfast telegraph that had asked me to write a story about it or a color story you know like a color piece and i literally couldn't, my brain would not work. I couldn't, couldn't string a sentence together. Couldn't, just could not write for the first time in 25 years. Could not write a sentence. And so then it moved on from that. And then if people asked, if people mentioned anything about it to me or there was uh, an update on the case or uh, lawyer's face was on the news or something like that. I couldn't deal with it. I had to look away or I had to switch off or I couldn't. It was just too much. And now I am kind of at a place where I can talk about it you know i have been involved in a memorial competition about you know Lyra, and memory of Lyra. with we brought together a whole crowd of school children um they kind of the write stories that kind of based on her words and i'm at a place now where i didn't know her in life uh, but i do hope that i'm kind of um honoring her and and after she has gone by doing things like that and kind of keeping her memory alive and getting people to talk about her and um and remember and remember the injustice that you know that her life was taken she was 29 years old and that her life was just snuffed out by uh mindless thugs um so yeah it's it never goes away I don't think it ever will go away it's not something you just forget I wish it was I really do genuinely wish that there was some way that people could reach into your brain and pull some um memories out because it would make my life a lot uh easier but I um I'm in a different phase of my life now. I'm teaching, I'm away from the news. And so I'm away from kind of those stories uh, where you might have to cover court cases regarding some of this stuff. And um, I'm in amongst a whole lot of uh, young journalists who are so enthusiastic about, about the news and that infectious enthusiasm and that kind of love and passion for journalism. It just, it's given me back, um, I don't know, hope hope and and joy and to hear them laughing and talking about you know their their the reprojects and creating projects and laughing together that is just it's a beautiful beautiful thing and that's a balm to my soul so the more that I can um emerge myself in that world as opposed to being out in the streets and reporting and and um all that kind of stuff it's that's that's part of my healing process too those folks in in Ulster University And all the great work that they do is just gives me back hope and peace, actually peace as well. I found peace again.
0: The book is called Breaking. It was edited by yourself and by Chris Lindsay. Where can people get it? Is this in bookshops or does it have to be ordered online?
1: It's in bookshops across Ireland and the UK. You can get it on Amazon and um, all, of, all the different places. It's Maverick House. If you go onto the Maverick House website and uh, search Breaking, it gives you all the wee tabs where you can get it throughout the world. You can get it in Barnes & Noble in America. And there's there's a whole list of them. I'm not going to list them all, but that's... If you go onto Maverick House, um, that's where you'll find the link. If you Or even if you Google Maverick House Breaking Trauma in the Newsroom, or Maverick House Breaking, uh, you'll get it there. Um the um and you're gonna check on Facebook. maverickhouse.com is the is the website, maverickhouse.com. Um
0: it's one of the hardest books. I've ever ever had to read and it's, yet it's one of the most important books I've ever read and I said this to you when you started putting it together as well, I sent you a message on Twitter and it really is, it's so incredibly valuable to, to see and to hear from people like yourself and to hear from David Blevins and from everybody else in that book and I'm extremely grateful to you not least for taking the time to talk to me this evening Leon O'Neill, thanks so much
1: Thank you very much Bob